I'm Teresa Wiesar, your host of One in Ten. In today's episode, The Fear of False Allegations, I speak with Taylor Jones-Semensky, a doctoral student at the University of Illinois, Chicago, about juror fear of false allegations and gender. Now, if you've ever worked anywhere near the criminal justice system, you're going to be highly interested in this topic because you know how heartbreaking it is when a case goes to trial and you have a clear disclosure and great victim testimony and really solid corroborating evidence and the jury acquits. Even after all of that, they acquit. It's heartbreaking, most of all to the child victim, but every multidisciplinary team member has had this heartbreak and knows the agonies of this kind of defeat. The feeling of letting the victim down and the confusion about what happened, what else could I have possibly done, and also knowing that a different jury with the same information might have convicted. Well, an area of science is really emerging around this issue, exploring how juries make decisions. And more importantly to our conversation here, specifically how they make their decisions about child sexual abuse cases. What would make a jury hear all of that, a good case, and still acquit? Taylor set out to explore that very question, and especially one specific aspect of juror beliefs. And that is the myth about the prevalence of false allegations. She really wanted to know what would happen at trial if there were an increased fear of false allegations and whether or not that would lead people to discount what victims said and more likely to acquit. She did a few things here that were really interesting to me. For one thing, she decided to create a reliable tool to actually assess that. Now, this sort of tool has not existed before for child sexual abuse cases, so it's fascinating that not only did she develop one, then she tested it. Then she went beyond that to say, if it is true that the more someone has a fear of false allegations, the more likely they are to acquit in these cases, does gender actually have anything to do with it? I'm not going to preview the findings. I'm going to let her do that. But are you already at the edge of your seat? I bet you are. Thinking about what the implications of this will be, not only for ourselves, but for our multidisciplinary team partners, and most of all for prosecutors, take a listen. Hi, Taylor. Welcome to One in Ten. Hi, Teresa. It's really a pleasure to be meeting with you today. Well, we're delighted to have you. I have to tell you, months ago when I ran into your article and we shared it with the field, with all the CACs, I just thought it was a wonderful topic. I just thought it was fascinating. And I said, we just absolutely have to get Taylor onto One in Ten to talk about this because it's so rare, I think, that people really do look at why juries sometimes acquit in these cases and not just look at that, but actually delve into or explore from a research basis some question around that. So I can't wait to dive into this discussion. And I want to start at maybe the very, very beginning, which is to say the listeners here have been interested in topics like these for a long time, but how did you become interested in the issue of jury acquittal in child sexual abuse cases? Because it seems to me that's what kind of spawned this research project, if I'm reading the article right. Yeah, absolutely. So there are kind of two parts to the story. 
I was at Oklahoma State University in a child trauma research laboratory uh, for my undergraduate degree. And the bulk of my work there was transcribing interviews. Um, so I heard a lot of really fascinating stories. But, you know, a lot of these interviews included CAC members, foster caregivers, um, et cetera. But one of the projects was funded by ODJDP. And I listened to all of these key stakeholders. So people in law enforcement, uh, judges, attorneys, social workers, and they were discussing their perceptions of children's problematic sexual behaviors. And I think this project particularly drew me in. So the views that these people have of these children can really affect the interventions they receive, how they move through the legal system, um, and in a lot of ways, whether their traumas are validated. So when I was applying to clinical psychology PhD programs, I really liked my advisor, Dr. Betty Bottoms' work. So she was interested in training a clinical psychology student, but she's a social psychologist and her work is in the intersection of psychology and the law. I really wanted to keep the victimization of children centered in my work and saw a really nice way of doing so um, by investigating how they're viewed once they're in the legal system. That's a long answer for how I came to this work. Um, and then for this particular paper, there's a whole other answer, but uh, it really started as an undergrad and I've been really glad to continue this work in my graduate career. Okay, I feel like there's a part of the story missing. <laughs> so <laughs> yes, you continued it on in your graduate work, but there are a million topics you could have chosen yeah. about the intersection between psychology and the law. So why this one? In Dr. Bottoms' work, there are kind of a lot of different routes that she takes at looking at how children, how child victims are treated in the legal system. Mm -hmm. So it can be, you know, perceptions of their credibility. It can be perceptions of, you know, there are all these different individual differences that I think regardless of what the law states, people can still affect what happens to these children. And yeah, I, I could have done this a lot of different ways. And I think another piece to the story is that um, in undergrad, so I was working on a thesis looking at how individuals with traumatic experiences, so I was looking at their ACEs, um, how they go on to have empathy in adulthood. So there are a lot of misconceptions that if you're abused, you lack empathy or you'll have psychopathology or go on to be an offender yourself. Um, and Dr. Bottoms had completed some work that was kind of another piece to that story, which was, um, you know, how do jurors' empathy affect children in the legal system? So it ties a couple of things together. So I think it was a nice extension of where I was. Well, and sometimes we're just drawn to a fascinating idea, you know, which I yeah. think is fine. Sometimes you're just like, well, you yeah. know what? This hasn't really been explored. Let's look at it. And I have to say, yeah. while I've seen other juror and potential juror research, this was a really interesting angle to me, which is mm -hmm. basically just to recap for our listeners who it's been maybe six or nine months since I sent this out to them. Basically, one of the questions explored, or one of the avenues of thinking, I guess I would say, that was explored in the study was, all right, we know that about 30% of child sexual abuse cases that go to trial end in an acquittal. Mm -hmm. And if you work in the CAC field, as many of the listeners do, you know very well that there's really no one-to-one -one relationship between acquittals and 
almost anything. Evidence, <laughs> the likelihood it's true. Like there's this huge disparity between what happens with the jury and what we have in the way of disclosure and evidence. And so I think it makes sense to me that researchers and all of us have a vested interest in better understanding. Why is that? Why is that so? And it seems like the particular avenue you took to explore that was to say, well, one thing that might make a difference in this, one thing, not the only thing, but one thing that might account for some of this is basically whether people believe kids to begin with or not, you know, sort of Mm -hmm. looking at this sort of fear of false allegations. First of all, more generally, sort of attitudes about how believable kids are in this in the first place, but more specifically about their own fear of false allegations. So first of all, am I basically summarizing that correctly? Because I do not want to mis-summarize someone's research. So feel free to add anything you'd like to about that. Absolutely. I think that was a very nice summary. So, you know, we know that there are all of these factors tied into unique individuals that affect how they evaluate case evidence and ultimately their decisions in child sexual abuse cases. And I kind of have a plug for another paper that made us really think about getting this paper out there too. So I'll also take a back step. I can't take all the credit for this paper. Um, So I, I have several co-authors on it. And a lot of the study conceptualization uh, began with doctors Tamara Hagerich and Carrie Nice Karras during their tenure as graduate students in Dr. Bottoms' lab. So some of the conceptualization came from them, but in my master's thesis, which we put out into um, psychology, public policy and the law in 2020, we were looking at what I alluded to earlier. So some of my interest in how jurors own sexual abuse experiences affect their empathy for child victims and their case judgments. And as you might expect, those with sexual abuse experiences are more victim empathic. They make more pro-child victim case judgments. And attorneys have thought this for years, right? That, that feels like, of course, but without good scientific evidence supporting it, Um, However, I think a lot of attorneys have used that belief to strike potential jurors Mm -hmm. from the jury. Believing that they would be biased, right? Believing they would be biased, absolutely. Um, And we make a really nice argument in that paper about why empathy or personal experiences aren't biasing. You know, we have so many unique experiences as people. But then we turn to you know, actually, there are so many people in the jury pool who are biased against children, who don't believe uh, that children can be credible reporters of their traumas, that they might falsely report about something that didn't happen to them. Or, you know, these people believe rape myths. And there's really nice work by people like Gail Goodman, who I know is on the podcast, Mm -hmm. uh, Tom Lyon, Michael Lamb, uh, Jonathan Golding, who they demonstrate that children can remember their abuse accurately. They rarely endorse false traumatic events and they're actually not very likely to disclose abuse when it, when it does in fact happen. So we're trying to take uh, the stance in this paper of what about all those people who are biased against the children and what do we do about them making out to the jury? That is an excellent question to ask, um, and one that's on our mind too, because we see this uh, in cases all the time. One of the things that I thought was also interesting about your paper is that the study design itself 
And that first, you decided to develop a fear of false allegation scale. So not just sort of ask a bunch of general questions about this, but really try to develop something that could eventually be tested. Well, not eventually, would be tested to see if it was reliable and valid, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. So I want you to just, because hearing this, people are like, well, what would be on that scale? Can you talk a little bit about the measure you developed? Like, what kinds of questions did it ask to determine sort of their level of having a fear of false allegations? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So for part of this, I, I do want to give all the credit, well-deserved credit to Dr. Hagerich and Nice Karis and development. But a lot of the items were modeled after the DEETS rate myth acceptance scale. So I think that was published in the 80s. And the items, so there's a 20 item version and a not so or a, a less wieldy version, that's 10 items. And the questions look at two big things. So one's personal fears of being falsely accused of child sexual abuse when they haven't done anything wrong and beliefs that false accusations are a problem in society. So, um, you know, some of the questions are like, I think that false accusations of child sexual abuse occur more often than people think. Um, I would never be an elementary school teacher because of the high risk of being accused of child sexual abuse. And so 20 items altogether, but in the second phase of our study, we tested the shorter version of the scale. You know, your study, it seems to me, was kind of two-part. One was you wanted to develop the scale and see whether it was reliable. And then the other piece of that was around looking at gender. And so talk a little bit about why you decided to explore that angle and how you did it in the study. There are a good handful of studies, um, studies that are mock jury studies using individuals who are not real jurors, um, but people who would be jury eligible. So 18 years of age, U.S. citizen um, as two of the qualifying factors. So my advisor, Dr. Betty Bottoms, has contributed quite a bit to these studies. Uh, Dr. Jonathan Golding, those are two big ones. And of course, you know, their students down the way looking at gender differences in child sexual abuse cases. Um, and there's a pretty solid pattern of women being more victim empathic and making those more pro-child victim judgments. And some of the factors that help explain that are, you know, um, men tend to be less victim empathic. They're more accepting of adult child sex. Uh, They hold more negative attitudes toward women. So this has been demonstrated in several studies that holding these attitudes or, you know, the empathy that you have for a child victim um, can influence how you're going to perceive the victim, how you're going to perceive the defendant, and ultimately it can affect the judgment too. But, you know, there are so many attitudes one can hold And I think, uh, especially in the past couple of years, we can think about some big cases of child sexual abuse that have come up. And I I feel like we are seeing some concern that there are false allegations, that less often than not, the abuse actually didn't occur. But going back to some of those, uh, some of the phenomenon that I stated earlier, 
it likely did occur uh, because so many hesitate to disclose. Um, so we wanted to identify the gender piece, um, figure out another construct that could explain why we're seeing differences in gender. And this isn't ultimately to say at the end of the day, a jury will be all male identifying individuals or all women identifying individuals. That's just not representative. But to figure out something else that could be going on to help inform attorneys in Bordier. Well, and you were trying to, it seems to me, just explain what some of those gender differences were actually about. And like one part of that might be that someone might say, hmm, I'm a little afraid I can be accused myself, which makes me therefore more skeptical when I hear Mm -hmm. allegations from others, right? Yeah. 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 At the end of it. You know, what's interesting is the time period you happen to do this in. Well, I don't know, happen. I mean, it was intentional. I'm sure it influenced the study too. But I would say in my, gosh, how many years? 25 maybe that I've been doing related work that public attitudes about child sexual abuse, even though they're not where we want them, they're much better than at the beginning Mm -hmm. of my career. I mean, by light years, because I started my career at a time that was almost immediately following the McMartin cases and the satanic abuse cases, and then the debunking of those and the wild uh, sort of open hostility to child sexual abuse victims that sort of followed. So I don't think we're in that place, mainly because we've had some huge multi-victim cases since in which you really cannot ignore the fact that abuse happened. The 20 years of clergy scandals that have gone on, Boy Scouts, I mean, you name an institution, it's probably had a large multi-victim case. So I do think that the public is in a little bit of a different place. That said, then we had the Me Too movement, and that had some really great benefits in terms of sort of establishing that as a society and culture, we're not really going to put up with this nonsense anymore. On the other hand, there's been a backlash to that. And I think a lot of folks who, there was sort of a media perpetuation of this idea that people could just be falsely accused at at will, adult men, usually about, it seemed to be sexual harassment or rape, but it seemed to me one of the things you were looking at is was that also kind of in the zeitgeist and influencing any of this? I mean, how much, I'm not asking you from like the perspective of your findings, but just how much do you think that all of that, not only Me Too, but the backlash that has transpired since has influenced these attitudes, this sense that anybody can be falsely accused anytime? I think it unfortunately puts a lot of people in a place of defensiveness before being open to a story. So, um, and when I say a lot of people, this goes back to the gender piece, men, you know, we know overwhelmingly men are accused of these crimes and overwhelmingly men are the perpetrators of these crimes. So I think it puts male identifying individuals in particular on high alert, more so in in the space of, I don't want to be accused. And maybe people are accusing willy-nilly these days. I don't know. And I think you couple it with, we were looking at child, it's a teenage victim in this case, but that you have all these things tied into children, the beliefs that children are less credible. They will lie, um, maybe a little more at willy-nilly. So I think, you know, going back to just the original say, I, there might be that 
mindset of defensiveness before some spillover effect to that. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. You know, it's so curious to me. I remember when sort of that whole big brouhaha was going on Mm -hmm. and there was so much discussion and you would see some women come out and say, you know, I just don't want my son falsely accused or whatever. And I just thought to myself, I've got a lot of male friends and I don't know any of them that have been accused. So, I mean, (laughs) so do you know what I'm saying? It's like this fear seems so odd and outsized to me in terms of the reality of it, Mm -hmm. that I think it can be hard to understand at times because it just feels outside reality, I guess is what I would say, but then I'm not a man. So, you know, but I mean, just as a woman, I have to say that it seems very strange to me that someone would go through a life afraid of this if their behavior is appropriate. You know, I remember at the time thinking to myself, if the shoe fits, I mean, are you like, have you done something that should make you worry you're going to be accused? Because otherwise, why are you so worried? But I just think it's an interesting dynamic, really. And I think the media's role in this is also something that's kind of interesting to explore. Let me just ask you this. Did you find what you were expecting to find? Um, I, I was not surprised by these findings. Yeah. Um, and, you know, referencing the other study, I love doing this kind of work. I love a common sense finding. Yeah. You know, attorneys have believed that jurors fear or are wary of false accusations and they can make decisions on who makes the jury pool um, or who makes the jury out of the pool based on that. So ultimately, I was not surprised by the finding that and giving it away. The, the big finding was that men holding more fear of false accusations were less likely to believe the abuse occurred. There are a couple of other judgments that didn't pan out. And we can talk a little bit more about those and what might have happened there. But our ultimate big finding, I was not surprised. Yeah. You expected if somebody was afraid of being falsely accused, that they would think that that could happen to someone else, which I mean, as you say, it's an interesting but common sense finding that that would be the case. What surprised you most in terms of your findings or about the project itself? What did you sort of take away as either an aha or you're just like, hmm, that wasn't what I was expecting? So I think uh, we do have some pretty steady findings of women believing children to be more credible. um, So the child victims to be more credible, um, men believing them to be less credible across several studies. I think this finding is pretty replicable, but we didn't see an association in this case. So um, nothing was really going on between gender and credibility or the gender to fear of false accusations to credibility. And a a couple of things that might have explained it, maybe that didn't pan out because for this case, it was a murder trial. Um, So a 15-year-old girl who um, stated that she committed murder against her father because of chronic sexual abuse. This was modeled after a real case that happened in the 90s. But, you know, that credibility judgment encompassed a little more than is she believable as a sexual abuse victim, but is she believable as a murderer? Is it believable that she committed murder for this reason of being sexually abused? So 
maybe that's something that was going on um, for that judgment. And then also there's a paper um, out of Australia that was published in the last five years. So looking at the age, 15-year-old child sexual abuse survivors are perceived as being less credible by mock jurors than our younger kids, about six or so. And this was a teenager. So I think age could have been stacked against the child victim and also just the context. There was that extreme nature layer. of the crime itself. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's you interesting. Know, yeah. And I, I think, you know, even if jurors did strongly consider the sexual abuse component, that might not feel as egregious as murder. You know, I just wonder, I, I hope somebody replicates your study and uses a different scenario or two, you know, the, more of the sort of, you would never use the word routine, but the sort of cases that are very much a part of the annual work of any prosecutor in America, I think around child sexual abuse, I think it would be very interesting to see if the results are the same or different. Yeah. So I think you've opened up a whole field of study here, which uh, for future work, which is really exciting. So I'm just wondering, you know, in looking at this, what do you think are the implications for the criminal justice system as a whole? So like I was explaining the findings a little bit before. So the way it worked out was that fear of false accusations, um, that was a partial mediation. So to explain what that means, you know, men had more fear of false accusations. They were less likely to believe the abuse occurred, but that didn't, the fear of false accusations didn't fully explain the picture here. Um, There was still that gender relation, even without that piece of fear of false accusations in there. So um, we don't know the answer to what exactly was influencing that belief um, or lack of belief that the abuse occurred. But I think it's still important to continue to assess what else is affecting their belief in the case itself. And I think the bottom line is I would not recommend attorneys just assess one's fear of false accusations and decide whether one should be on the jury or not. I think that's the bottom line. Also, you know, in attorneys using this scale, which I think it it could be very useful to them. And we can't draw conclusions uh, about how one individual is going to see a case and how they're going to behave based on a group trend. So in our study, we had almost a thousand people in the phase where the scale was created and almost 300 in the second phase that included the trial. So we don't know what this one person, Joe, might do if he has high fear of false accusations. Can you anticipate, though, whether you recommend it or not, that there will be people who will use elements of your scale in questions that they pose them for dear? I'd be shocked if that doesn't happen. Yeah, I think so. And I would strongly recommend the shorter scale is 10 items. I would keep that together because if you kind of pick out one question here, or one question there, then it's not as strong in predicting. Yeah, it's not how reliable. One, yeah, mm-hmm. it's not reliable. It's not going to be as strong in figuring out how uh, that juror is going to perceive the case. But what I will say related to that is that, sure, I, I think it's fair to use the scale. And in doing so, it's a better approach than, you know, um, 
it's better than chance in determining whether a juror will be able to view the case as they in ought an to in an unbiased way. And I think no matter what uh, individual difference an attorney picks for a juror to hone in on, so whether it's their gender, whether it's their child victim empathy, they should always be asking, you know, as a follow-up to getting someone who has high fear of false accusations Will this preclude your ability to view the case evidence in an impartial way? But we know that even that question isn't strong enough in really being able to suss out the problem. So I think attorneys really have to critically examine, will this individual be biased and spend some time with these people who have high fear of false accusations? I think that's right. You know, I'm also wondering, do you think there's a role for juror education here? Because, and certainly public education, because it seems to me that your jury pool is really a reflection of the wider public, you know? And so Mm -hmm. if you're finding this cropping up in juries all the time, it's because it exists in the public at large, right? So, I mean, is there something that you can say, well, you know, whether or not they use the scale, Um, or whether or not you even recommend that they do, is there something that as a part of your trial prep, as a part of the case that you're putting in front of a jury, that there's something here to be addressed around this fear of false allegations and the sort of attendant myths to that, that, you know, as you point out, I think that there are people who really think that there are false allegations all the time, that that just is common. Absolutely. And um, as you said earlier, We do owe that to the media. Of course, false accusations, they come out, they're sensationalized and get airtime, whereas all of these very valid cases with really good evidence behind them, they just don't get the same sort of attention. So I think talking about just the numbers um, with the sensationalization piece, and I, I know your questions about the jury pool itself, but just community advocacy too. We've got to get the word out there that these kids are not lying about what's happened to them. It's it's really unlikely. So, you know, I, I think the scope of the problem, we can integrate that into a little bit of the juror education piece and community education piece. So, you know, about one in five girl identifying individuals are sexually abused before the age of 18. About 10% of boys are sexually abused before the age of 18. And that's just those who disclose. There are a lot of sexual abuse cases that are occurring. Sexual abuse survivors don't wear the abuse in a way um, that maybe physical abuse or severe neglect kiddos do. What has happened to them might not have left any sort of a mark, or by the time they disclose, there's little evidence. So just because we don't have this really strong physical evidence of what happened to the child doesn't mean that it didn't. And then also, I think just speaking to the numbers again, we know that kids who do make it to the trial point, they're re-traumatized because they have to keep talking about what happened to them. And then the case is tried by jurors who have these beliefs who stack the deck further against them. So I think just educating jurors and the community about the reality of the problem, how big the problem is, and how few children really get their day in court. I think that the public also doesn't know how much gatekeeping happens long before something ever gets to trial. You know, that it's Mm -hmm. like a funnel. You have the kids who 
blessedly disclose, you know, they somehow managed to disclose. And then of that, a smaller percentage, there's going to be an investigation of that. And there's going to be some intervention, whether that's in a CAC or whether they're in a community that doesn't have one, however that might happen. And then of all those cases, there's going to be those that go over to the prosecutor's office to take a look at, and then there's going to be this big winnowing out, right? And so it's just the funnel keeps getting smaller and smaller and smaller so that, you know, I when I talk to extended family about this, I'm like, by the time something has gotten to trial, it has been vetted and vetted and vetted and vetted and vetted. So the likelihood of a false allegation is just minuscule at that point because of not only the, because kids don't just lie about these things, but also because of all of the intensive vetting mm-hmm. to even get to that point of the funnel. And I think that that's the part the media never reports on or talks about at all. You know, it's like, and neither do TV programs about this. Law and Order makes it look like a kid makes an explosion and five minutes later, they're in court. It's like, I'm not sure that's really doing us any favors because you and I both know that's not really how it, it happens at all. So that is I'm not just, the reality. Yeah. I mean, if only, right. But no, that is not the reality at all. So I'm just wondering, you've been talking about our role in educating the public, which I think is so true and just the community at large. And I'm just wondering if there's anything beyond that, that you think that child abuse professionals should do with this information. You know, you've put this great study out in the public domain and, you know, we appreciate that. And I think that we do have a role in educating the community and the public, but is there anything else you'd like folks to take away from that? So as far as um, all of those who have skin in the child protection game, the study is most relevant to attorneys and judges, but certainly I think there are individuals that they collaborate with, the social workers, CACs, um, who are on the child protective side. And, you know, more of the bottom line of no matter what, I want, I want this child to have um, their trauma validated. So I think you know, on the legal actor's side, it's more of maintaining that openness and that multidisciplinary team, keeping those connections really strong, monitoring their own biases. Yeah, I I think those are some big pieces for the multidisciplinary team that can be involved. I think for attorneys who are asking these questions in Bordier to ensure that their questions are evidence-based. So we know that There are questions that, you know, I've investigated for the first time and published that have been asked in Bordier for decades and decades. I think those are two really big takeaways. Yeah, I'm sorry. I don't mean to interrupt you, but that's such an interesting point you're making. I don't think that, I mean, if you think about the way Bordier works, Mm -hmm. basically attorneys make up their list of questions and they ask them. And sometimes they ask the same ones, you know, they have a sort of a question roster that they're typically asked in these cases, but they also can make them up on the fly. And you're pointing out something really interesting, which is how much have these questions been tested as to whether they elicit, you know, valuable and valid information. So, all right, attorneys, if you're listening, <laughs> and for those of you who are not attorneys, but you work with prosecutors, I would just say, and judges and all the rest of it, you know, pass along the podcast episode to them and the article itself, because the article is very rich and has a lot of uh, information to be gleaned from it. So I'm just wondering, where are your research interests taking you next? 
you know, this is, was very interesting, but it's been a few months, Taylor. So now we're expecting the next study. So what's next for you? Yeah, that's fair. I think right now um, we're actually trying to get out an article in a legal newsletter on how, how do jurors life experiences bias them or not? Mm, because that's, that's the question um, that I think a lot of attorneys believe in word yes. here, that a life experience makes one biasing. And so um, it is guided by the master's study um, that came out in 2020 about how all of these different factors of empathy or sexual abuse experiences inform the way we view something, but don't bias. So we are working on getting that out. And then I, I think some really nice next steps for this particular line of questioning. So what do we do with fear of false accusations? What we do next? Teresa, you said a little bit earlier that it would be nice to evaluate this construct in a, a more standard, if you will, mm-hmm. um, child sexual abuse criminal trial where, you know, the accused perpetrator is alive, you know, and because in the case that we use, the accused perpetrator was uh, deceased. And, you know, then jurors are kind of battling more evidence or more statements from the child, from the accused perpetrator. So I think that would be a nice next step in seeing how um, fear of false accusations comes up. And then also having defendants so that an accused perpetrator be an individual who's working in a position of trust, if you will. So. Mm -hmm. So a teacher or a Mm -hmm. priest or a coach, because, you know, when I say these titles, you can think of some headline cases that have come out in the past several years. So I think if the defendant were one of those individuals who's in this uh, profession of trust, a prospective juror's views could go, I think, either way. You know, they could view the defendant as an easy target for a false accusation because, you know, if we're accusing Larry Nassar and well-regarded priests, these cases are out there. Others have seen them. So maybe the defendant could be an easy target for a false accusation or, you know, still using Larry Nassar, these jurors could think about this who was well-regarded, had an overwhelming burden of proof of his longstanding abuse. So then they make that mental shortcut. So I think working with a defendant who's in a, a position of trust, whether that be a teacher, coach, priest, or Boy Scout uh, counselor, that could be an interesting study as well. I think there are so many future interesting directions yeah. you can go. Yeah, those are two, and there are probably 10 others that if you sat yeah. here for a minute, you would think of. Um, and I just really appreciate the fact that you're continuing this work. I think it's critically important work. And I think multidisciplinary teams all over the U.S. are very interested in it because they work so hard to protect these kids. And it's really hard when you see a good case where you feel very confident that the kid is absolutely telling the truth and a jury doesn't believe them. It's so devastating to that child. It's devastating to the multidisciplinary team. So I think the more we know and understand about how and why that's happening, you know, the better off we all are. So what haven't I asked you that I should have or anything else that you want to share with our listeners? We covered a lot of ground. Thank you so much for your really thoughtful questions, Teresa. I I just really want to recognize 
the work that went into this paper. So as I alluded to, uh, some of the, the conceptualization of this study, it came before me um, with Drs. Hagerich and Nice Karis. So, you know, they were really instrumental to getting the study going. But of course, Dr. Betty Bottoms, my advisor, she has been so important to the field of psychology and the law. Um, and I know you said when you started in the CACs, it was with those satanic ritual abuse cases coming up. And I know she uh, contributed a lot to that work too. So has been a great asset to the field. And then we also had several undergraduate research authors on this paper. And they're all now doing great, great things in medical school. Um, so big thanks to Kajal Sochtev, uh, Kara Skorak, and Jonathan Anasetti. They were all excellent in helping get this paper out. So I appreciate their work into it, and I appreciate you talking to me about it. Oh, it's been truly our pleasure. And one of the best parts of research is that no research article stands alone. It's all built on work others have done, and it will feed work for you know future years and future work that will be done by others. So, well, Taylor, the next time you publish another one of your fascinating articles, come back onto the podcast. And thank you so much for joining One in Ten. Of course. Thank you so much, Teresa. It's been a joy to talk with you. Thank you for listening to One in Ten. Please share this episode with your multidisciplinary team members and especially your prosecutors in your work. And for more information about this episode or any of our others, visit our website at oneintenpodcast.org. 